All right, with that, let's dive into the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 1 here. Uh, This is our series, The Rise of the Christian Church. The Rise of the Christian Church. Uh, We'll be in Acts 1, starting at verse 12. Um, Back in 2021, uh, the Christian church was really stunned and saddened to learn about a scandal involving one of our beloved leaders and apologists, and that was Ravi Zacharias. And it wasn't until after his death that some of the questions around him were formally investigated and a report was issued, and it was a shocking report. The report disclosed that Ravi had been found to mishandle ministry money for personal interest, that he had had numerous um, inappropriate relationships with women, that he kept photos on his phone of hundreds of women, He had abused several of these women whom he had hired at massage parlors and then uh, went on to take advantage of them. He then used his position of power and trust to intimidate and manipulate them. And he was even found to be the owner of uh, several massage parlors in the U.S. and abroad and even regularly traveling with a woman who was a massage therapist. And all of this was for his selfish appetites. And when that news broke, it was, I don't know if you remember it, it was stunning. It was stunning. It was appalling. It was embarrassing to the church. And some of you have had to deal with this same kind of disillusionment, maybe closer to home. Maybe it wasn't a public leader, but someone closer to you, someone you trusted. Maybe it was a mentor or a profound influence in your life, and they were found to be caught up in something shameful. Or maybe a close friend or even a family member who has walked with you in your faith and been an encouragement to you over the years, and now they've renounced their faith. Or maybe one of your parents, you loved and respected them, and unfortunately you learned something troubling about them. Or maybe you have felt betrayed in some way by a ministry partner or an organization Uh, or maybe even a church family that you've worshipped with for a long time. Um, I myself, a couple years ago, had to deal with this um, when the director of my doctoral program at Western Seminary was dismissed um, for uh, moral failure. And we just couldn't believe it. A bunch of pastors and seminarians are sitting here shaking our head going, this guy, our man... And it was disorienting. It's, it's a kind of spiritual disillusionment. It's, it's shocking. And when these kinds of things happen, it causes us to sometimes question uh, our relationship to this person. It can cause us to question their relationship with God. It can even cause us to question our own relationship with God. If this is what Christians do, do I really want to be a Christian? And so what do we do when we learn something like this? When someone that we love and respect, someone with whom we share faith, and maybe even a ministry partner, what do we do when they severely disappoint us? And our passage today in Acts 1, 12 to 26, we find that the apostles are dealing with this same kind of thing. A moment of spiritual disillusionment. And and from them, we get a a great example on how we can handle this. Their disillusionment is centered around these things. Judas, their brother, their ministry partner, 
has betrayed Christ and them and the movement, right? Jesus has been killed, which was an initial shock to their faith that he was the Messiah, at least as they understood things. They did see him raised from the dead, but Jesus goes on to make it clear that this wasn't the time that he was going to establish his kingdom the way they had hoped. And then he also tells them he's leaving and at this moment has left, has ascended to heaven. And so this is the moment they're in. And I just remind you, these are just ordinary individuals like you and me, right? They feel like we feel. They have raw emotions like we have raw emotions. And this is a tough moment. In the context here, we pick them up walking back from the Mount of Olives back to the upper room where they had been. And uh, this is an interesting place that they're coming from here. This is the same place that they had gone to to pray with Jesus on the night of his arrest. This is, this is the same place where Judas betrayed them, where he led the soldiers to Jesus. This is the same place from which Jesus ascended into heaven. If you talk about a pretty poignant place on earth, this is it. But this place for them is filled with emotion and memory and pain. And from there, they're returning to the upper room to sort of get their bearings, right? And so we can just imagine how they're feeling, lonely, disillusioned, hurt, walking back to the upper room, minus Judas, minus Jesus. And I think this this pain and this uncertainty and this great confusion helps us to look at this to see what would they do and what ought we do if we find ourselves in that setting. And the first thing that they do by way of example is this. They maintain a simple, quiet devotion. They maintain. No knee-jerk reactions. No sudden changes. Nobody bolts. They just dig in together here. Verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So as I read this, the first thing that stands out to me is they didn't quit. They didn't quit. They simply maintained a beautiful and simple devotion to Christ, which in this instance is expressed by obedience. They obeyed. They stayed in Jerusalem. They did what Jesus asked. They dared to continue to believe that what Jesus said would happen, the Holy Spirit would come. They believed that it would. And I think that belief here sort of highlights what's at the very core of temptation for you and and me. And any temptation that we might face, I think when it comes up, the little quiet voice inside that comes with it is, maybe I know better. Maybe I know better. And I think we have to ask the question, do we believe in God? Do we believe that he is for our good? Do we believe that he really does love us? Do we believe that he's in control even when we don't like the circumstances that have been drawn for us? Do we truly believe that his way, even if it's the hard way, is the best way? 
The voice of temptation says, I know better. I think I know better. And one of the more impactful books um, for me in my own life, um, it's probably not the best book I've ever read, uh, but important for me because of all of my Ericness. Okay, we'll just call it that. Um, the title of the book is Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And I had a chance to meet him, and he's a lovely man. <clears throat> well, he was a lovely man. He's dead now. Or more alive than ever, we could say it either way. Um, but in this book, he outlines the, the basis of how, we, how it is that we can trust God. And he basically says that because God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and loving, then we can trust him. These three ingredients make God trustworthy. Because he knows what is best for us, because he is able to give us what is best, and because he's loving, he will give us what's best. Which means that any struggle, any disappointment, any hard act of obedience that we might have, these can be carried out with trust in a sovereign God because of who he is. Because of who he is. That means the breakup that you went through that you didn't want, the job loss, the emotional letdown, the failure of someone close to you, that all of these things, that none of them came into your life outside of the knowledge or permission of God, and that even these things are instruments in his bag for your sanctification. Even these things. And so at these times, I think we have these, these moments of disillusionment when, when, when somebody struggles around us and we begin to ask questions, we begin to doubt, right? Doubt creeps in. And um, we might ask something like, if, is there even a God? Is he even there? If so, is, is he any good? And if he's good, is, what good is he if this happened in my life? These are the kinds of doubting questions we have. I was reading a book this week. Um, I'm always reading a book, always, always reading a book. But I was reading this book by Jamie Smith or James K.A. Smith on the life of St. Augustine. And there was a line in there. I don't know if you've ever read a book and you've come across a line, you're like, you close it and you set it down and you go, I got to think about that for a little bit. This line hit me like a ton of bricks. He said this, sometimes doubting our doubts is the beginning of wisdom. Sometimes doubting our doubts is the beginning of wisdom. I thought that was profound. Because it's amazing how much credibility we give our doubts right? A doubt can creep in and suddenly our whole faith is potentially turned upside down. The whole corpus of our faith, something that's been long learned, long nurtured, long sustained, fiercely held and defended, a doubt creeps up and we're willing to jettison the whole thing. Like how much credibility we give to our doubts. Sometimes doubting our doubts is the beginning of wisdom. So when we run into spiritual disillusionment, I think the example we get from the apostles here is maintain your simple devotion. Practice those acts of obedience that we have learned. Don't let the shock take you to a foolish place. And then secondly, their example to us, maintain Christian community. And I, know, I realize this is a hard one. Some of you are going, okay, the Christian community or a member of it just burned me. And now you're saying maintain Christian community? So I don't like that very much. I, and I get that. 
but nevertheless, it's wise. Um, don't judge the whole thing by the one or the few, right? Don't paint everybody by the same brush. I think when we give a disillusioning experience the power to derail our faith because of an individual's acts, we give one individual an incredible amount of power in our life. And I think you've got to ask yourself, do I want to give that person that much power in my life? Is that what I want to do? Verse 13. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So I want to acknowledge here that uh, maintaining Christian community, especially in times where we've been burned, is very difficult, right? I've been in Baptist churches. I'm 46 years old. I've been in Baptist churches for 40 of them. Maintaining Christian community is difficult. It's hard. Um, We get disappointed by people. And Christian community cannot be dependent upon the perfect performance of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Otherwise, it's going to be dead on arrival, right? The reality is Christians will fail us. And we will be a Christian that fails somebody else. That's what's going to happen. And so we have to have an incredible amount of grace for one another and even for ourselves. Because if perfect discipleship were the standard for Christian community, let's just do something kind of fun and imaginative here. It's been a serious topic so far. Let's let's use our fun imaginations. Let's say that perfect discipleship were the standard for a community. What would the conversation from the apostles have been walking back to the upper room? Maybe something like this. They turn on Peter. Boy, Peter, you really botched it back there. You brought a sword to prayer meeting. And then you lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant, who wasn't even carrying, right? He was a pencil guy, a book guy, and that's who you went after. Oh, big man, Peter, right? And you're so erratic. You go from swinging a sword to defend the Savior, then you run away, and then you're cowering in the courtyard to go on to just even deny knowing Jesus when a little girl asks you about it. So some kind of leadership, bro. And Peter, sort of to get it off of him, would deflect somebody else and say, yeah, well, you guys all fell asleep, didn't you? All of you. In fact, one of you was so scared, you ran clean out of there and clean out of your clothes. When one of these guys named here is Naked Disciple. That's his nickname behind closed doors, right? <laughs> naked Disciple. And whoever that guy was, to get it off of him, would deflect and go to Thomas, right? And say, Thomas, we wouldn't... You're the guy who let us down. You weren't even there afterwards, When Jesus appeared to us, we had to go find you and you maintain these doubts. You're the last one back in, bro. I've got some disappointments with you. Thomas, to deflect again, could come back to Matthew and say, Matthew, we wouldn't be in this mess if it weren't for you. You're a tax guy. Why weren't you auditing Judas, right? (laughs) Let's get that accounting degree to work, bro. Everybody knows bookkeeper, treasurer, two different people. 
where were you? Meanwhile, the ladies could be standing back, shaking their heads, going, men, men. (laughs) You're all losers. We were at the foot of the cross when Christ was being sacrificed. We were the first ones to the grave. We heard the angel. We saw the empty tomb. We came and got you guys, men. So if perfect discipleship is the standard, right, for Christian community, then that's probably the conversation coming back from the Mount of Olives. But instead, they walk back quietly together. They come back to obey together, to pray together, to wait together, fully aware of one another's failures. They have grace for each other. Do you see that? True Christian community is going to require the extension of grace for each other over and over again because we're flawed. We're not perfected yet. Or I can say it a different way. Minus grace, you will wound yourself again and again and again on the mistakes of others. You will be left with wound after wound and a sour sense of self-righteousness. Minus grace. Grace isn't just a gift for the person you extend it to. It's a gift for you. It's a gift for you too. I remember my mom used to have this little wooden plaque above the stove um, growing up as a kid. And it just had that simple line that you all know, Christians aren't perfect, but just forgiven. Just forgiven. Just the reminder. I probably had it up there for my dad. So I should remember to let him off the hook from time to time. So we need to remember this or we will we'll destroy one another and we'll destroy ourselves because of a, a lack of grace. Sometimes in, in these times of disillusionment, what we need to do is maintain a simple devotion, simple quiet devotion, and we will need to maintain our Christian community and that will require grace. Um, what we see here too is that the disciples persisted in communal prayer. Um, and I, don't you want to know what they prayed? We, we don't have the prayer. We, we, don't have, we just know that they continued in communal prayer. And I, actually, I'm not, I'm not so sure that it matters too much what they prayed. I think what matters is rather that they prayed. That together they maintained the posture of coming before the Lord in prayer. There is something absolutely humbling when we come in reverence to God and we come together in prayer. I can't boast in prayer in front of you coming to God, right? You just can't do it. You can't do it. When we together come before the Lord in prayer, we are in our best posture, our best position. Um, C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this in Mere Christianity, which I, I, sh- I need to say is a book that I've started three or four times and never finished. So that's my like, Christian confession. Uh, some, sometimes I've said that and it's drawn gasps back from the audience, but. But he said this, Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but thus a creature dithering to and fro, I like that phrase, dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent upon the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, 
you must train the habit of faith. The first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. The next step is to make sure that you have once, ex- that you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily praying and religious reading and church-going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. We have to feed and nourish our faith by rehearsing and remembering what we know to be true. Third thing they do here is the disciples maintain a godly vision. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field and their language Akaldama, which is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. There is no one, uh, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place in leadership. Okay, so why do I say that this is maintaining a godly vision here? How, How is this a godly vision? And the answer is this, they came back to the scriptures. They came back to the word of God, which is trustworthy, right? They have this experience, it's brutal, and they feel their feelings, but they have those feelings corrected by the scriptures. And I want to kind of tease this out a little bit, because I think there's two things that are important here. First of all, in verse 17, notice what, what Peter says, right? He declares, he was one of our number, and shared in our ministry. Why, why, why does he say that? He's not informing them of something they don't know, right? This isn't news to them. They know. And I think what he's doing is he's actually identifying with the pain that everybody is feeling at the same time, right? Peter wasn't just this stranger. He wasn't a peripheral guy. He wasn't someone they didn't know. He was one of our number. He had a share in our ministry, And I think Peter is just drawing out the pain that they're all feeling in this moment, identifying it, even validating it. It is okay to feel your feelings. But then he does the other important thing. Having identified those, we take them back to the scriptures and let them be informed by the scriptures. You see, I think the world gets it wrong when it says, no, just live into your feelings. Do what you want, whatever makes you feel good. Right? They get it wrong there. But sometimes Christians get it wrong too when they're well-meaning, well-intentioned, but they give no credit to feelings. Oftentimes, even when they're, they're trying to connect with a friend who's maybe going through a struggle, they come right to prescription. Here's the word, boom. Haven't even spent time understanding yet. I think Peter does something really wise here, this two-step process. He recognizes what they're all dealing with. He was one of our number. He had a share in our ministry, Right? We're hacked off. But God said this was going to happen. He goes back to the word and lets it inform them. This is a great example of good pastoral care. 
This is good leadership. This is good friendship. This is a good and wise way of living with your spouse and your children in an understanding way, which is a word that Peter uses later in his epistle. Um, Peter allows them to feel their feelings, but he brings them into submission to God in his word. You see these two steps here? He goes to the Psalms, and he shows them where um, the Holy Spirit, through David, had sort of projected into the future that this kind of thing would happen. And the Psalms, I think, are a great guide for us in this. You go to almost any psalm, and one of the first things you find right at the top of the psalm is an honest acknowledgement of where the person is, right? Lord, why am I so alone? Why have you left me? Why does my enemy triumph over me, right? It's honest about the emotion, but then it turns and he comes back to, but I will trust in the Lord. That is the constant pattern of the psalms. Well, the last thing that they do for us by way of example is they maintain godly leadership. And there's just a, just a reminder that we need. Because you know what our culture really wants to do again and again? Elevate celebrity, skilled pastors, leaders, right? Whoever's got the charisma, whoever's got skills, they go to the top. And what our culture fails to do frequently is to look at the qualifications. And here we get a great example of how this ought to be done. Uh, verse 21 Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Versabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas has left to go where he belongs. Interesting words there. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. So one of the first things I want to commend about how they go about selecting the replacement is, is that they select upon right qualifications, And this is actually really important for us, not just in general, but even specifically in our day and age. Because there are some people today who want to make the claim, this is particularly the new apostolic reformation, they want to make the claim that apostles and prophets still exist today and speak with the authority of scripture. And I'm here to tell you that we can look at this passage right in front of us and say, nobody can continue to meet that qualification. Because what was it? to have been with Jesus since the beginning, to be a witness of his resurrection. And not only that, but to be commissioned by him. When we look in the New Testament, we can actually see two kinds of, or almost two strata, or two kinds of apostle. Apostle means sent one, uh, or kind of like an ambassador, or, or something like this. And there's two distinct classes in the New Testament. There are apostles of Christ those that he commissioned, those that he sent to establish the church, to articulate Christ's teachings, to defend, to lead the church, to pen scripture, and to guide it in its infancy. Those are apostles of Christ. The word can be used generally otherwise to say, uh, to refer to a missionary, like Barnabas was listed as an apostle, but not capital A apostle. He wasn't a witness of Christ since the beginning like the others. Okay? 
So that word can kind of be used interchangeably, but in our day and age, I think what happens is what we call equivocation, saying one thing and meaning the other. Oh, I'm an apostle of the Tanana Valley. I have authority to declare what ought to happen around here. I speak the words of God and with the, with the sort of level of Scripture. That can't be fulfilled today. Somebody could be a missionary, a, a minister, a sent one, but those are apostles of the church. They don't have that same capital A authority. And I just want to say, watch for that. When you hear that word, ask somebody, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that you're a messenger of the church? Okay, that's one thing. Do you mean that you claim to be able to speak with the authority of Scripture? Don't have anything to do with that. Don't have anything to do with that. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, in Galatians, he actually has a point where he's claiming his apostleship, right? And he says this, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's where he is claiming to be an apostle of Jesus, not just a sent one of the church. So generally speaking, I don't even use the word to refer to missionaries or anybody else because I think it's just misleading. I'll say a missionary, an ambassador, an envoy, a servant, a minister, whatever. They can still be sent of the church. Uh, the second thing they do, not only do they base their decision on right qualifications, which is a good corrective for our culture, it's guided by prayer. Now, initially, we might look at this and go, wait a minute, actually what they did is they cast lots, right? They prayed and they cast lots. So the question might come up, should I carry some dice in my pocket? You know, I got a tough decision. All right. Evens, yes. Odds, no. Is that how we should be making decisions? The answer is no. And the reason is we are gifted as new covenant Christians to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. They don't yet have this. They're waiting for Pentecost. We live on the other side of Pentecost and praise God have the Holy Spirit within us to guide and direct our decision making. We are incredibly blessed. So I do think overall they give us a great layout for um, just maintaining godly leadership based on qualifications. One who is mission-oriented, right? They were to be a witness of Christ. They took nominations. These qualifications had to be confirmed by others. They did pray, and they did ask the Holy Spirit to guide them, even though in that instance it was done by lots. Let's not do that. But we would ask the Holy Spirit to guide our decision-making. So let me just come back to the beginning here. There will be moments of spiritual disillusionment in your life. The more and more trust you put on people around you, the more frequently you will run into it. There will be occasions of spiritual disillusionment. And we have a great guideline here. When it happens, maintain your simple and quiet devotion. Maintain your Christian community. Maintain a godly vision. Bring your emotions under control of the scriptures. And ensure a godly leadership around you. That's the example the apostles leave to us. Let's pray. Lord, every person in this room, everyone here, I believe, can probably point to a moment of great disappointment. Every one of us could. A time when our faith was shaken and we had to figure out our way forward. 
I pray, Lord, that if that were to ever happen again, Lord, that we would be able to take these steps, that we would look at the example that the apostles left for us and the way they turned to you, and that we would be able to put them in place. God, may our confidence not be in institutions and churches and pastors and leaders and apologists or in any person around us, but may our confidence ultimately be in you, for you have never let us down. May you be the anchor for our soul. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.